thyroid toxins, double-edged swords of the kingdom planti. This is a special report that I had written in 2007. It has been out of print for years. The basic principles are not at all out of date. Some things that might be out of date are the state of the human evidence. So, for example, at the time that I wrote this was around the first incredibly small trial that was done with broccoli sprouts, and many more have been done since then. There is probably additional epidemiology on cruciferous vegetables that it would be worth updating. I'm going to guess that some of the other toxins that are just described in here uh, probably don't have a lot of updated science on it. But in terms of the mechanisms and the effects of processing and the interactions between the thyroid toxins and other components of the diet, I think none of these things are out of date. And this information is very much worth knowing in 2022. There are some cases where the mechanisms, the principles of the mechanisms involved have been substantially updated, and I I interject my comments when that's the case. So, for example, the ways that hormesis works, we know a lot about that we've learned since 2007, and I interject comments where I feel it's necessary to make an update. Plants produce many toxic substances to defend themselves from insects and other herbivores. These chemicals are also toxic to humans. Small amounts of plant toxins, however, may actually promote human health through the principle of hormesis, that is, the principle that chronic exposure to low doses of toxins helps keep our defenses revved up and ready to handle the assaults of more formidable toxins. We must therefore rely on human epidemiological evidence and experimentation using whole foods rather than experiments with isolated chemicals in test tubes or isolated cells before we conclude whether a food is dangerous or healthful. Such research has indicated several classes of foods may exert a toxic effect on the thyroid gland and thyroid hormone metabolism in humans. We call these foods goitrogenic, and we call the chemicals responsible for this effect goitrogens. Goitrogenic foods include soy, millet, cruciferous vegetables, cassava, lima beans, flax seeds, almonds, and fruits and fruit seeds of the rosacea family. The goitrogens in soy and millet are flavonoids. The goitrogens in cruciferous vegetables are isothiocyanates, which their precursors, glucosinolates, generate when we chew the plants in its raw state or when our intestinal bacteria digest them, whether cooked or raw. The goitrogens in the other foods are called cyanogenic glycosides. Cooking and fermenting do not destroy millet or soy flavonoids. In fact, they make these foods more goitrogenic. Millet goitrogens are present in both the bran and the endosperm. Although the bran is more goitrogenic than the endosperm, traditionally prepared millet that is dehulled and thus has its bran removed, fermented, and cooked into a porridge is exactly the type of millet that is associated with goiter in human populations. Microwaving crucifers reduces the average isothiocyanate yield to one-half. Steaming them reduces this yield to one-third. Boiling them for a half hour and dumping out the water almost entirely eliminates this yield. The effect of microwaving and steaming is dependent on the individual's intestinal flora and is unreliable. Inter-individual variation in the release of goitrogens from crucifers cooked in this way varies fourfold. 
The effect of boiling leaches goitrogens into the cooking water and also destroys them. This is a more reliable way to avoid the goitrogens. Fermentation makes cruciferes more goitrogenic. The most effective way of removing cyanogenic glycosides is by crushing tubers and leaching them in running water for several days and by blanching and boiling the leaves. Dietary iodine is able to overcome the effect of cyanogenic glycosides, moderate amounts of crucifers, and is probably able to overcome the effect of soy flavonoids. Dietary iodine is not able to overcome large amounts of crucifers or any amount of millet. Millet flavonoids may be more dangerous than the others because they not only interfere with the production of thyroid hormone, but they also appear to interfere with some of the homeostatic mechanisms by which our body compensates for the hypothyroid state. Now, I will interject here. This is this is me in, 20, 2000, <laughs> in 2022 uh, to say that there are millets on the market in the United States and perhaps elsewhere in the world that are a particular type of millet called proso millet, which is mainly manufactured for bird seed, but nevertheless winds up in food products that is not goitrogenic. But the goitrogenic millet is pearl millet, which is the most commonly type of uh, millet consumed in the world. And phonio millet is another type of millet that also seems to be goitrogenic, although it's uh, not studied as, as well. Uh, but I will go into a little bit more detail on the types of millet at the end, as well as link to an update that I made since this was written on why the type of millet that you eat matters. Back to the thyroid toxins report. People who have resilient health while eating these foods should continue to eat them with impunity. However, people who have thyroid problems or other problems associated with iodine deficiency or cyanide exposure should consider experimenting with the following dietary restrictions. Number one, eliminate millet. Number two, moderate soy and only consume it with additional sources of iodine. Number three, limit crucifer intakes to five servings per week. Only eat more than this if it's boiled and matched one's crucifer's intake with extra iodine. Number four, avoid foods with cyanic genic glycosides unless they are extensively boiled or crushed and leached into running water for several days, and that's when cyanogen intake with extra iodine and vitamin B12-containing foods or supplements, but not cyanocobalamin. These foods are not inherently unhealthy, but simply contain chemicals that have the capacity to harm the health of some people under some circumstances. This is true of all foods. Experience always trumps theory, so the individual should use this information as but one tool with which she or he can experiment to find the most appropriate diet for herself or himself. All right, that's the overview or the summary. Now we move on to the main text. The line that divides nutrients from toxins is often thin and equivocal. Since any given chemical may react in any number of ways in a test tube depending on the other chemicals with which it is combined, it is often possible to prove such a chemical to be both a nutrient and a toxin. The selective citation of test tube science can then be used to prove cultural assumptions about what constitutes a healthy diet. A 1996 paper published in the journal Cancer Biomarkers and Prevention reviewing the epidemiological evidence associating the consumption of brassica vegetables with the risk of cancer, began with the following words. The consumption of vegetables and fruits has always been seen as health-promoting. End quote. 
The authors provided no citation for this assertion. They likewise neither stated specifically by whom vegetables and fruits have always been seen this way, nor defined exactly what length of time they meant the word always to constitute. Nutritional science often begins with this assumption as a self-evident truth. The assumed conclusion, however, generates a question that scientific research must answer. Why are fruits and vegetables health-promoting? To answer this question, it is currently fashionable to dub any chemical that can absorb electrons from free radicals in a test tube an antioxidant nutrient, especially flavonoids or other polyphenols, without any regard to the biological functions of these chemicals. Though somewhat less pervasive, it is likewise popular to consider the glucosinolates found primarily in cruciferous vegetables to be nutrients because their byproducts are capable of killing cancer cells. Although widely denounced by the mainstream as quackery, many authors continue to promote cyanide-releasing substances found in plant foods, a cyanide-releasing substance found in plant foods called amyg- amygdalin, as a vitamin whose deficiency results in cancer, vitamin B17. Popular discussions of these plant chemicals rarely integrate the function they play in the plant with the function we should expect them to play in the human body. While anti-milk writers are quick to point out that cow's milk is not meant to be a human food, one rarely encounters a writer who points out that leafy vegetables, that is, leaves, are not meant to be foods for any animal, but are meant instead to carry out photosynthesis for the survival of the plant for whom they have sprouted. Indeed, fruit and milk are the only foods that the producing organism quote-unquote intends to be food for animals. Of the two, only milk is meant to nourish rather than to attract the animal who consumes it. Since plants are immobile, they produce a variety of defenses that mobile animals do not need. Some of them are structural, such as thorns. Others are chemical and include a wide variety of toxins. Humans have developed ways to detoxify many such plants when used as staples, to selectively breed less toxic varieties, or to utilize some of these toxic components for specific medicinal purposes. This report will focus on plant toxins that attack the thyroid gland, often called goitrogens. Thyroid toxins are thus called because a disease called goiter ranks importantly among the thyroid pathologies that they produce. Goiter is characterized by derangement of the thyroid tissue and distorted development of thyroid follicles, the multicellular compartments within the thyroid gland wherein thyroid hormone is produced, as well as an increased weight and size of the thyroid gland. In its most severe form, it produces a visible protrusion in the neck. The most important of the thyroid toxins are antioxidant flavonoids, especially those found in soy and millet, glucosinolates, found primarily in cruciferous vegetables, and cyanogenic glycosides found in such foods as cassava, flax, bitter almonds, lima beans, sweet potatoes, and the flesh and pits of the fruits of the rosacea family. Are these substances nutrients or toxins? Does the dose matter? How can these foods be safely consumed? These questions will be answered below. Flavonoids, the toxic antioxidants. Flavonoids belong to a broader class of compounds called polyphenols, Polyphenols are the most abundant of the natural biologically active plant chemicals, often called phytochemicals. They contain two or more phenol groups per molecule, a phenol group being the alcohol form of a benzene ring. Advanced plants as well as mosses synthesize flavonoids. Among other groups of organized 
of organisms, only a select handful of algae, fungi, and coral produce them. There are over 5,000 different flavonoids, and we are only beginning to obtain a general understanding of the many roles that they play within plants that synthesize them. Some flavonoids absorb ultraviolet light, which may protect the plant from the effects of excess radiation and may also play a role in attracting certain insects that are capable of perceiving light in this spectrum. Many flavonoids can neutralize free radicals, dangerous chemicals with unpaired electrons, and thereby prevent damage to the lipids of cellular membranes. Legumes exude flavonoids into the soil that turn on certain genes within beneficial nitrogen-fixing bacteria and enable them to colonize the plant roots. Ironically, in other cases, flavonoids turn on certain genes that enable pathogenic bacteria to infect the plant. Some plants produce flavonoids that are toxic to other plants, either by inhibiting enzymes essential to cell wall synthesis, or by stimulating the production of toxic free radicals that destroy the root system of the enemy plant. Flavonoids can fend off pathogens by creating a sticky mess that binds up essential enzymes and renders them useless, by directly binding to and inhibiting individual enzymes, or by chelating essential minerals so that the pathogen cannot use them. Although some specific insects have adapted to plant flavonoids and may even use them for their own defenses against predators, flavonoids often act as feeding deterrents, digestive inhibitors, or toxins to non-adapted insects. The ability of a food to act as an antioxidant within a test tube system fully detached from any living organism varies more than 1,000-fold. The foods with the highest antioxidant capacity are generally the foods with the highest amount of polyphenols. Blueberries and black raspberries, both rich in polyphenols and high in antioxidant capacity, retard or reverse age-related neurological dysfunction and reduce the ability of carcinogenic chemicals to produce cancer in laboratory animals. From these lines of evidence, researchers are investigating the possibility that the antioxidant activity of flavonoids and other polyphenols may be responsible for the apparent health-promoting effects of fruits and vegetables. Researchers are also investigating other means by which flavonoids may promote health and protect against oxidative stress. The results are as yet inconclusive and warrant some caution. Onion extracts and their predominant flavonoid quercetin, for example, increase the synthesis of the enzyme that makes glutathione, the cell's own master antioxidant. Likewise, berries rich in quercetin and other polyphenols increase glutathione levels in live mice, though the effect is inconsistent and may depend on how well the gut flora of the mice free the flavonoids from the sugar-bound forms in which they tend to occur in foods. Not all flavonoids, however, increase glutathione synthesis, and the ability of a flavonoid to do so and thereby increase the antioxidant status of the cell has no relationship whatsoever to the ability of the flavonoid to neutralize free radicals directly in a test tube. The mechanism by which certain flavonoids increase glutathione synthesis, in fact, might be through two separate mechanisms that generate free radicals. Some of these flavonoids inhibit the respiratory enzymes of the mitochondrial membrane. These enzymes harvest energy from food molecules in a process that ultimately results in the conversion of oxygen to water. When inhibitors prevent them from fully functioning, however, the mitochondrial membrane releases partially processed oxygen molecules that have not finished their transformation to harmless water and that possess dangerous unpaired electrons. Some of these flavonoids also automatically degenerate into free radicals themselves. By increasing the level of oxidative stress in the cell, they may tax the supply of glutathione and thereby cause the cell to make more of this essential molecule. 
A recent review suggested the ability of certain flavonoids to promote health may be an example of the principle of hormesis. That is, the idea that chronic exposure to small amounts of toxins keeps helps keep our detoxifying capacity in shape, so to speak, so that when confronted by a greater toxin, it will be up to the task of defeating it. I'm going to step in, Chris Masterjohn, in 2022 and say two things. Number one, I think over the last 15 years, it's been become incredibly clear that the way that flavonoids protect against oxidative stress is not at all what they do in vitro and is completely an example of hormesis. And not to contradict the mechanisms by which they can cause oxidative stress that are discussed in the thyroid toxins report that I just went over, but I would add that since then, we've now come up with a very clear pathway by which the adaptive response is regulated, wherein there is a protein called KEEP1 that uh, keeps, sort of a play on on words and acronyms here, uh, keeps NERF2, another or NRF2, uh, another protein in the cytosol, the main the main compartment of the cell is sort of like if if all the organelles within the cell are um, rooms in a house, the cytosol would be the hallway. This is the main fluid in which everything else is bathing in the cell. So, uh, but most importantly, Keep One keeps Nerf Two out of the nucleus, and Keep One has thiol groups, which are sulfur-based groups, which essentially act as sensors of oxidative stress because they can undergo oxidation. And so if something oxidizes the thiol groups of KEEP-1, these thiol sensors, KEEP-1 lets go of NERF-2, NERF-2 moves into the nucleus, and then NERF-2 alters gene expression to upregulate the entire suite of antioxidant uh, defenses and xenobiotic defenses and, and, and so on. And it so happens that if a flavonoid is increasing glutathione synthesis almost certainly by oxidizing the thiol groups of KEEP-1, not to say that it doesn't cause oxidative stress elsewhere in the cell, but that's how you get the adaptive response. Back to the report. Flavonoids and thyroid hormone metabolism. Among the myriad enzymes that flavonoids affect, two of them are important to thyroid health, thyroid peroxidase, TPO, and diiodinase. Within the thyroid gland, TPO successively converts two atoms of iodide to one molecule of diatomic iodine and then attaches this molecule to tyrosine residues on a large protein called thyroglobulin. Iodide, parenthetically, is a negatively charged singular atom. Diatomic iodine is an uncharged molecule containing two iodine atoms that are bound together. Free tyrosine itself is an amino acid, but all amino acids, when they are part of a protein, are called amino acid residues. And that's because they're not actually acids anymore once they are part of the protein. TPO, the, the thyroid peroxidase enzyme, then takes these residues, the tyrosine residues, each containing either one or two molecules of iodine attached once this process has been completed, and pairs them up with each other. After this, other enzymes cleave these paired-up tyrosine residues from the thyroglobulin molecule to produce the two forms of thyroid hormone, the active T3 and the less active precursor T4. Each of these is numbered according to the quantity of iodine molecules it contains. 
T3 contains three molecules of iodine, while T4 contains four molecules of iodine. The thyroid mostly produces T4, which the iodinase enzymes in the liver and other tissues convert to active T3. Many flavonoids inhibit TPO. These include the following. Catechin, found mainly in tea and chocolate. The citrus flavonoids, hesperitin and naringenin. The soy isoflavones, genistein and daidzein. Mirincitrin and miricitrin from the anti-diabetic herb Myrcia uniflora. Flavones, such as luteolin and apigenin, found in phoniomelet and glucosyl vitexin, glycosyl orientin, and vitexin found in pearl millet. And finally, flavanols such as quercetin, camphorol, and myricetin found in onions, kale, broccoli, various fruits, tea, and red wine. Some flavonoids such as camphorol, naringenin, and quercetin act as suicide inhibitors. Because they destroy the enzyme with which they come into contact, only new synthesis of the enzyme can overcome the effect. This suggests that a low-protein diet might make a person particularly vulnerable to the effects of excess flavonoids by failing to provide adequate protein for enzyme synthesis. In test tube experiments, soy isoflavones act differently depending on the amount of iodine in the medium. Without adequate iodine, they act as suicide inhibitors. With adequate iodine, they trick TPO into attaching iodine to themselves instead of to the tyrosine residues of thyroglobulin. Many flavonoids also inhibit deiodinase enzymes and could thus prevent the activation of thyroid hormones. Quercetin and catechin are five times more potent than other flavonoids such as camphorol and rutin. Even quercetin and catechin, however, can only inhibit deiodinase when present at 10 to 15 times the concentration at which they inhibit TPO. It may be, then, that the flavonoids have little, if any, effect on deiodinase activity at the concentrations reached when one consumes most flavonoid-rich foods. Camphorol actually markedly increases the production of type 2 deiodinase in human human muscle cells. This form of deiodinase is a special type expressed within the cells of the human heart, skeletal muscle, thyroid, placenta, fetal brain, and several regions of the adult brain. Whereas the liver uses type 1 deiodinase to provide active T3 for the general circulation, the cells of these particular tissues use type 2 deiodinase to activate thyroid hormone for their own use. Type 2 deiodinase levels increase greatly as a reaction to the hypothyroid state, compensating for the decreased production of T4 with an increased conversion of T4 to T3. Camphorol's effect on isolated human muscle cells, however, is not a compensation for a hypothyroid state and actually results in a substantial increase in oxygen consumption and metabolism. Flavonoids, the pitfalls of jumping to conclusions from test tube science. It would be a great mistake to try to reason from these test tube experiments how we should eat. A flavonoid present in a food does not necessarily show up out of nowhere in free form permeating our thyroid gland as soon as we consume it. Instead, we must metabolize it, absorb it, further metabolize it, distribute it through our bloodstream, and only then can the thyroid gland or other tissues take it up. Flavonoids are generally present in foods attached to various sugars, and our enzymes must free them from these sugars in order to absorb them. Quercetin, for example, has five different hydroxyl which is an alcohol or OH group, four different hydroxyl, five different hydroxyl groups, any one of which may be attached to a sugar. While glucose is commonly attached, there are, other, there are many other sugars and combinations of sugars that may attach themselves to one of its hydroxyl groups. Exactly which hydroxyl group attached themselves to sugars and exactly which type of sugar is attached 
determines whether our own enzymes can metabolize the flavonoid or whether our intestinal bacteria must metabolize it before we can absorb it. Consequently, we will absorb and metabolize the different forms in different parts of our intestines and in different proportions. For example, we absorb about 5% of the quercetin in onions, which our intestinal cells can metabolize themselves, whereas the absorption of quercetin from tomato juice, which is dependent on intestinal bacteria, varies 140-fold between different individuals, ranging from 0.2% to 2.8%. Fruits, vegetables, and grains each possess their own unique pattern of specific flavonoids, each of which may differ from the others in its physiological effects. Flavonoids are only one class of polyphenol. Foods rich in them tend to be rich in other polyphenols with different physiological properties. Furthermore, because of the different complexes the flavonoids and other polyphenols may form and the different ways in which these foods are prepared, the absorption of these chemicals from different foods will vary widely. Finally, if the principle of hormesis is correct and flavonoids confer benefits by acting as low-dose toxins, a toxic effect demonstrated in a test tube or a cell cannot tell us whether this toxic effect will benefit or cripple the health of the living organism who eats the food. Depending on the type, amount, and bioavailability of flavonoids each in each food, then, some flavonoid-rich foods may be very good for us, and others may present a danger to our health. Scientists have thus far shown two flavonoid-rich foods to harm the thyroid gland, soy and millet. We have only sparse information about the goitrogenic effect of soy. By contrast, we have substantial information about the goitrogenic effect of millet, a grain that is the singular staple of many poor rural populations of Sudan, India, Pakistan, and Africa, thus posing a significant threat to the health of those who do not have access to a great diversity of other foods. Soy isoflavones, thyroid toxins. Isoflavones are a particular class of flavonoid found in red clover, alfalfa, peas, soy, and other legumes. The predominant isoflavone in soy, genistein and daidzein, occur primarily as complexes formed with sugars. Fermentation of soy milk with common yogurt bacteria and the production of miso and soy sauce substantially increases the content of free isoflavones, and thereby increases their bioavailability. Genistein and daidzein are well known for their estrogenic effects, though less well known, they are also thyroid toxins. When genistein and daidzein are combined with isolated thyroid peroxidase in the absence of adequate iodide, they act as suicide inhibitors, each flavonoid molecule sacrificing itself to permanently destroy each enzyme molecule with which it comes into contact. In the presence of adequate iodide, they act as alternate substrates, tricking the enzyme to attach iodine molecules to themselves rather than to the tyrosine residues that will eventually pair up together to form thyroid hormones. In the experiments conducted thus far with live rats, isoflavones seem to mostly act as suicide inhibitors. Rats consuming isolated genistein in amounts producing blood levels matching those of human infants on soy formula suffer 80% loss of TPO activity. Rats consuming a five-fold lower amount producing blood levels matching those of a typical adult on, soy -rich Asian, on a soy-rich Asian diet suffer 60% loss of TPO activity. Even rats consuming a 100-fold lower amount suffer a 40% loss in TPO activity. Rats consuming standard lab chow containing 5% soy exhibit 50% lower TPO activity than rats consuming a special soy-free diet. And there is little difference between the effects of sugar-bound genistein from whole soy and those of purified genistein. Rats consuming iodine-deficient diets composed of 30% soy develop thyroid cancer. Paradoxically, however, despite the massive inhibition of the TPO enzyme, neither rats consuming 5% soy diets nor those consuming 20% soy diets exhibit any signs of goiter or other thyroid pathology. 
Before we take comfort in this, though, we should consider the human evidence. Physicians have reported numerous cases where an infant's fed soy formula developed goiter that resolved after switching the infant to cow milk to a cow milk formula or commencing iodine supplementation. Teenagers with autoimmune thyroid disease were not any more or less likely to have been breastfed during infancy than their healthy counterparts, but were 2.5 times more likely to have consumed soy formula during their infancy than their healthy siblings or than healthy teenagers who were not related to them. A recent review examined recent 2007, examined the effect of soy on adult thyroid function in 14 human trials. One of the two authors, Mark Messina, sits on the scientific advisory board of Archer Daniels Midland Company and the United Soybean Board, and is a member of the United Soybean Board's Speakers Bureau of Researchers. He founded the first peer-reviewed journal dedicated to vegetarian nutrition, co-authored the book The Simple Soybean and Your Health, and has given over 300 presentations on the health benefits of soy foods. Most of the trials examined in this review used isolated soy protein with varying concentrations of isoflavones. The researchers were not looking for effects on the thyroid as the main endpoint. Consequently, they tended to look only at a few cursory measures of thyroid function, such as thyroid-stimulating hormone, TSH, T4, or T3. The majority of these studies did not show any changes in these parameters, and those that did showed relatively small effects. But what does this tell us? Goitrogens tend to increase TSH, but this increase is only transient. They may decrease the amount of T4 produced, but they may also, as is the case with millet described below, inhibit the conversion of T4 to T3. Thus, T4 might increase, decrease, or stay the same in response to a goitrogen. As described previously, production of type 2 deionase enzymes increases in a hypothyroid state. Thus, while there is less T4 available from which to synthesize T3, the body compensates by increasing the rate at which it, incre- at which it synthesizes the latter, and there may therefore be no net change. In populations with a high prevalence of goiter, there is no difference in TSH or T3 levels among people with and without goiter, nor is there any consistent increase or decrease in T4. The data presented in the review, then, are essentially worthless. One of the trials stood in stark contrast to the others, both in its results and in the fact that it was the only study to seriously look for an effect on thyroid function. In a Japanese trial published in 1991, only the abstract of which is published in English, Researchers fed 30 grams of roasted soybeans that were pickled and stored in rice vinegar to 37 healthy test subjects who had never had goiter or antithyroid antibodies. No change in serum T3 or T4 occurred. By contrast, though TSH levels remained within the normal range, they rose between 45 and 90%. Goiter occurred in 15% of adult men and women consuming the soy for one month, 71% of young women consuming the soy for three months, and 30% of postmenopausal women consuming the soy for three months. Malaise and sleepiness occurred in half of the subjects consuming the soy for three months, but not in the subjects consuming the soy for one month. The adverse effects resolved around discontinuing the soy for one month. The Messina Review emphasized the fact that the results of this trial, quote, differ from all the other relevant human research, end quote, and noted that they, quote, appear to be biologically implausible since it is difficult to comprehend how such small amounts of soy protein, approximately 8 grams, and isoflavones, approximately 30 milligrams, their own estimation, 
could result in marked antithyroid and goitrogenic effects in a population that regularly consumes soy but does not have a high incidence of goiter, end quote. They apparently considered it relatively unimportant that it was the only study in their review that actually looked for goiter and symptoms of hypothyroidism. Nevertheless, there are sub- several substantial drawbacks to this study. First, there was no control group. Although the changes appearing after the introduction of the soy are marked, res- resolved after the removal of the soy and were more pronounced in the two groups receiving soy for three months than in the group receiving it for only one month, the study would have been much more rigorous had it included a group that did not receive any soy at all. Second, the study did not provide any further information about the type of pickling the soy under- underwent or about the content of the sugar-bound and free isoflavones or other potentially goitrogenic components. It's possible, for example, that the concoction was unusually high in isoflavones, but that that the bacterial fermentation had made the isoflavones much more bioavailable, or that the vinegar contained other goitrogenic substances. Finally, the researchers did not assess the iodine intake of their subjects. We therefore do not know whether a high iodine intake could have overcome the effect of the soy. If soy isoflavones act primarily as suicide inhibitors, only an increased rate of protein synthesis fueled by dietary proteins and nutrients necessary for the task would be able to overcome their effect. If, however, soy isoflavones primarily act as alternate substrates, a high intake of iodine should be able to overcome their effect, making the generous assumption that the iodinated isoflavones themselves do not carry out some type of antithyroid effect, for example, by mimicking thyroid hormone and interfering with its function. Although animal experiments suggest that isoflavones act primarily as suicide inhibitors, no experiments have directly addressed the question of whether a high iodine intake can completely overcome the effect of soy. The facts that the addition of iodine to test tube experiments results in the cessation of suicide inhibition, and that many cases of soy-induced infant goiter resolved with iodine supplementation, suggest that soy may be safe to consume, at least with respect to the thyroid, if one also consumes extra iodine. Nevertheless, the data are incomplete at this point, and prudence would require one to exercise careful moderation of soy consumption in addition to ensuring adequate iodine intake. Millet flavonoids, thyroid toxins. In contrast to soy, where the specificity of the available information is seriously lacking, we can confidently indict pearl millet, especially its flavonoids, as thyroid toxins whose actions cannot be overcome by either a high iodine intake or traditional fermentation and processing. There are a number of other plants taking the same, taking the name millet. Each is related to the others more in form and function than in lineage or taxonomy. Only pearl millet has been studied extensively for its goitrogenicity, although a single study has shown the presence of goitrogenic flavonoids in phonio millet as well. Pearl millet is the most common form of millet, and I will refer to it simply as millet throughout this article. Researchers first identified millet as a potential source of thyroid toxins in 1981 when studying the possible causes of the high prevalence of goiter in rural villages of the western Sudan. This region is mountainous and distant from the sea, and the consumption of iodine-rich seafood is scant. Rural villagers center their diets on millet. They consume two meals per day of millet porridge cooked with dried okra and very small amount of organ or muscle meat from goat or beef. Traditionally, the villagers dehull the millet seeds and then soak them for two to five days in water, letting them ferment. Because the soaking water is a skin irritant, they take care to discard it out of the reach of young children. They also make beer from millet and consume small amounts of wheat and sorghum. Although the iodine intake of the towns and villages is equally low, the prevalence of goiter is much greater in the villages than in the towns. 
The primary dietary difference between villagers and townspeople is that the latter consume less millet and more wheat or sorghum. For example, the 1981 paper that first highlighted the possibility of millet as a goitrogenic agent showed that among schoolchildren in the town of Nyala, where 37% of calories came from millet, 10% of boys and 13% of girls had goiter. In the village of Tawaila, where 67% of calories came from millet, 35% of boys and 55% of the girls had goiter. In the village of Kas, where 73% of calories came from millet, 46% of boys and 75% of the girls had goiter. The example of goiter among the Sudanese schoolchildren highlights the usefulness of the uselessness of using TSH, T3, or T4 to judge thyroid status. When researchers divided 350 girls from Chris Master John in 2022 here, saying not the uselessness at all, but uselessness with respect to goiter. Back to the report. When researchers divided 350 girls from an elementary school in Kass into those who did not have goiter, those who had grade one goiter, which is less severe, and those who had grades two or grades grades two or three goiter, which is more severe, there was no difference in the levels of TSH or T3. Although girls with grade one goiter had decreased levels of T4, girls with grades two or three goiter had levels of T4 that were intermediate between those without goiter and those with grade one goiter. This shows that as goiter progressively developed, T4 levels initially declined, but as the goiter became more severe, T4 levels began to return to normal. Experiments with rats conducted during the 1980s showed that iodine supplementation could not overcome the effects of millet diets, that the goitrogens were present in the bran and the endosperm, and that millet goitrogens appeared to act through several different mechanisms. These experiments were somewhat compromised by the use of goitrogenic control diets. These included sorghum, which contains small amounts of a cyanogenic glycoside that will be discussed in a later section, and a standard laboratory diet called the Remington diet that contained an unidentified thyroid peroxidase inhibitor. Moreover, both pure millet and pure sorghum diets fail to meet the nutritional requirements of rats. This is especially true for calcium, which is only present in these grains at one-tenth the rat's requirement. The first experiment fed rats one of five diets, each supplemented with adequate iodine. The five diets were as follows, whole millet, whole millet fermented in plain water at room temperature for 24 hours, a mixture of millet bran and sorghum endosperm, a mixture of sorghum bran and millet endosperm, and finally, a sorghum, a sorghum control diet. All of the animals consuming millet developed goiter while those consuming sorghum did not. The millet diets enlarged the thyroid follicles and, a flattened, and flattened the epithelial cells that lined them. The millet bran tended to enlarge the thyroid follicles more than it flattened the epithelial cells, while the millet endosperm tended to flatten the, the epithelial cells more than enlarged the thyroid follicles. The serum levels of T4 increased while those of T3 decreased. The 24-hour soaking did not change the toxic nature of the millet. Iodine deficiency goiter is another animal. In iodine deficiency, the level of T4 decreases because there is insufficient iodine for the thyroid to produce the normal amount. The level of T3, however, increases for several possible reasons. First, T3 has one fewer iodine molecules than T4, and its production may be a natural, accidental consequence of having insufficient iodine to occupy all of the iodine-binding spots on the tyrosine residues. Second, the thyroid gland may deliberately secrete more active T3 to con 
to compensate for having less total thyroid hormone. Third, the liver and other tissues may react to the hypothyroid state by increasing the conversion of T4 to T3. Yet, we see the complete opposite in millet-fed rats. T4 goes up and T3 goes down. One likely explanation for this is that in addition to the action millet goitrogens carry out directly on the thyroid to produce the abnormal structural changes, they may also interfere with the deiodinase enzymes that convert the less active T4 to the more active T3. This would make them more dangerous than other goitrogens because they inhibit the natural ability of the body to compensate for the hypothyroid state. The second study compared raw millet to autoclaved millet. An autoclave uses a combination of heat and pressure and is commonly used to sterilize laboratory materials, and tested the effects of the high doses of iodine. Like the first study, it used sorghum as the control, as the control diet. The iodine-supplemented rats consumed drinking water spiked with iodine at a concentration of 30 parts per million. Although they did not record how much water the rats drank, a human would obtain 28 milligrams of iodine by drinking 4 glasses of this water per day and 56 milligrams of iodine from drinking 8 ounces per day. For comparison, the United States Dietary Reference Intake, or DRI, for iodine is 150 micrograms for adults who are not pregnant or lactating. One microgram is but a thousandth of a milligram. The millet had the same effects on thyroid hormones as it did in the first experiment. T4 went up and T3 went down. Likewise, it caused the same structural derangement of the thyroid tissue. Autoclaving the millet did nothing to remedy the goiter and may have even made the millet more toxic. The only effect of the huge dose of iodine was to cause a further increase in T4 without any normalization of T3. This provided further evidence that the millet goitrogens were inhibiting the conversion of T4 to T3. The two experiments taken together also showed that neither normal nor high intakes of iodine can overcome the goitrogenic, the goitrogenic effect of millet. Both experiments showed unrelated adverse effects of the diets. The rats on both sorghum and millet diets failed to grow as rapidly as they should have and had abnormally enlarged parathyroid glands. The authors suggested that the adverse effects on growth were caused by insufficient protein and energy and that the adverse effects on the parathyroid gland were caused by severe calcium deficiency. Two papers, one published in 1989 and the other in 1995, identified a class of flavonoids in pearl millet called C-glycosyl flavones as the least one of the as at least one of the goitrogenic factors in millet. Pearl millet primarily contains glucosal vitexin, glucosal orientin, and vitexin. The 1989 paper showed that these flavonoids exist in both the bran and the endosperm, but exist at higher concentrations in the bran. As the millet is progressively dehulled, the flour made from the remaining seeds contains lower and lower amounts of C-glycosal flavones. In live rats, only the two outermost bran fractions produced an increase in thyroid weight compared to the control rats. Surprisingly, this fraction actually increased iodine uptake into the thyroid gland, contrary to the action of many other types of goitrogens, although it decreased the incorporation of iodine into the thyroglobulin and the pairing iodinated tyrosine residues to form T3 and T4. It had similar effects when added to isolated slices of thyroid gland. When the researchers analyzed the effects of water-based solutions of the diets on the TPO enzyme, however, both whole millet flour and the control diet inhibited TPO by 25%. 
The fact that the control diet was goitrogenic itself calls into question the results of the live rat experiments showing that only the brand fractions increased thyroid weight when, controlled to the, when compared to the control group, which obviously stands in direct conflict with the original finding that human populations eating dehulled, fermented, and cooked millet developed goiter. When the researchers boiled the outermost bran fraction for one hour, its ability to inhibit TPO nearly doubled. When they boiled it for four hours, its inhibitory activity increased more than threefold. When they let the four-hour boiled millet stand at room temperature for seven days, its inhibitory activity increased sixfold, sixfold over the raw millet. The most likely explanation for this is that boiling breaks down the bonds between the flavonoids and the sugars that bind them. We know, for example, that heating breaks the bonds between quercetin and its associated sugars in onions. We also know that these sugars dramatically reduce the inhibitory effect of flavonoids on the TPO enzyme. Hesperidin, for example, is the sugar-bound form of hesperitin. The latter inhibits TPO 16 times more effectively than the former. Since the live rats were not consuming the millet boiled— the results of the experiments must have dramatically underestimated its goitrogenicity. The 1995 paper confirmed that the C. glycosyl flavones were goitrogenic by feeding purified vitexin to live rats. It did not decrease iodine uptake into the thyroid, but it decreased TPO activity, especially the pairing of iodinated tyrosine residues to form T3 and T4. After this paper, however, researchers never conclusively identified which flavonoids or other substances in millet might be inhibiting deiodinase enzymes, if in fact deiodinase inhibition is the reason for the other increased for the observed increase in T4 and decrease in T3 that occurs in rats, or clearly resolved why these changes occur in rats, but not in humans. A paper published in 1990 claimed that the goitrogenicity of pearl millet could be reduced by quote semi-wet milling. Reasoning that the bran can be removed more effectively from the endosperm when millet is moist, the researchers tempered the millet overnight to 26% moisture, ground it, and discarded 25% of the grain as bran. They then fed the flour to the test animals without any further cooking or processing. Animals consuming millet that had not been tempered developed structural abnormalities in their thyroid glands, while animals consuming tempered millet or red sorghum did not. Of course, few people who eat millet will eat it as raw refined flour. Other researchers published two papers in the late 90s using millet that had been traditionally fermented by Sudanese natives themselves. In this process, the natives dehull wet whole millet seeds in a traditional mortar, removing the bran by winnowing, soak the bran-free seeds in water in an earthenware container for two to five days, discard the water, and finally sun-dry the millet on a clay platform. The researchers cooked thick porridges out of three different sets of grain, unfermented millet that had not been dehulled, traditionally dehulled and fermented millet, and wheat. Compared to the wheat control, millet increased levels of T3, T4, and TSH, and more importantly, increased thyroid weight. Fermentation enhanced these effects. Although the fermentation likely breaks down the bonds between the flavonoids and their associated sugars, the researchers did not investigate this effect. They did, however, show that the millet lost 40% of its zinc, 60% of its potassium, and 60% of its magnesium after traditional processing. Since they did not fortify the fermented diets with these minerals, they could not determine whether the fermentation enhanced the toxicity of the millet by altering the structure of its flavonoids or by inducing the loss of protective nutrients. 
It is likely that the high prevalence of goiter in the Western Sudan is influenced by a combination of factors that includes both millet goitrogens and malnutrition. Nevertheless, the flavonoids from millet clearly exhibit independent toxicity to the thyroid gland that cannot be overcome by dietary iodine or by traditional methods of processing, such as wet dehulling and fermentation. It would appear that the only way to protect oneself from the antithyroid effects of millet is therefore to limit the role it plays in one's diet. Cruciferous Vegetables and Their Natural Pesticides Glucosinolates, which occur in cruciferous vegetables, are perhaps the best understood of all thyroid toxins. The name crucifer is developed from the Latin meaning the bearer of a cross. Although now called brassicae, the 18th century Swedish taxonomist Carolus, Carolus Linnaeus named the mustard family cruciferae because the flowers of its members bear four petals in the shape of a cross. The most widely used cruciferous vegetables belong to the genus Brassica and include broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, cauliflower, collard greens, kale, kohlrabi, mustard, rutabaga, turnip, and bok choy. Other crucifers include arugula, horseradish, radish, wasabi, and watercress. Lesser-known crops such as maca, a tuber in the, used in the Andes, Virginia pepperweed, used by some Mexican natives, are also cruciferous. Even canola oil derived from a close relative of the turnip, is a member of cruciferi. Crucifers, especially cabbage, reached cult status during the 16th century in Europe as a cure for all things. According to Antonio Mazald, a 16th century Parisian professor of medicine, the Germans and Flemish had a custom of consuming cabbage before and after meals, which protected them from being, quote, overtaken by the wine which they never tire of drinking, and with which they are always ready to moisten their throats, end quote. Mazald and some of his French and Italian contemporaries advised both young and old, even infants, to consume crucifers throughout life. Cabbage, according to these writings, could cure all things. The internal use of cabbage, especially mixed with wine, would cure a swollen spleen, pain of the heart, liver, lungs, or any other internal organ, venomous snake bites, and ulcers. Warm cabbage juice mixed with wine and dripped into the ears would cure hardness of hearing, while if it were mixed with fenugreek flour and applied as a plaster to the joints, it would cure gout. Inhaled in its pure state, cabbage juice purged the brain. Applied to the natural parts of women, quote-unquote, it provoked menstruation. The topical application of cabbage leaves could subdue inflammation, remedy tumors, burst carbuncles, arrest hair loss, cleanse the skin of the face, and even remove freckles. Other 16th century writers considered the turnip a remedy for parasites and an antidote to snake venom. Mustard soothed the kidneys and its seeds cured toothaches. Horseradish root mixed with white wine and bitter apple, heated, and then dripped into the ears, eliminated buzzing sounds. (laughs) If the same... I wonder if you could hear after that if it was too hot. (laughs) If the same mixture were drunk with mead, according to these writings, it could cure jaundice. In 1929, researchers from Johns Hopkins University tempered the unbridled enthusiasm for crucifers that had characterized previous centuries of medical thought when they produced goiter in rabbits by feeding them cabbage. Cabbage and other crucifers contain chemicals called glucosinolates that they use primarily as a defense against insects. These chemicals contain glucose, sulfur, and cyanide combined into a single molecule. 
Glucosinolates are not actually goitrogenic themselves, but are precursors to the active goitrogens and to other toxins. They are accompanied by the enzyme myrosinase, a type of beta-glucosidase within the plant. The myrosinase, however, is segregated from the glucosinolate in a separate compartment. When insects attack the plant or when humans chew it in its raw state, the enzyme breaks free from its compartment and breaks apart the glucosinolates into glucose and another one of three molecules, isothiocyanates, indoles, or nitriles. Bacteria also produce their own beta-glucosidase enzymes that can break down glucosinolates, whether the plant is raw or cooked. Since the breakdown products of glucosinolates tend to be toxic to the plants as well as to insects, the plant holds them in an, as an inactive precursor until they are needed for its defense. Most insects regard these chemicals as toxins and avoid them. Some insects that specialize in feeding on crucifers, however, have developed ways to avoid their toxic effects. The cabbage moth, for example, produces a special enzyme that steals the sulfur from the glucosinolate. Since the myrosinase enzyme cannot recognize the glucosinolate when its sulfur atom is missing, the glucosinolates pass through the moth's digest digestive tract without ever releasing their toxic breakdown products. Other insects produce their own myrosinase enzyme and accumulate the intact glucosinolates that they obtain from feeding on crucifers. They use these chemicals to defend themselves against predators in the same way that plants do. Glucosinolates, thyroid toxins. The main thyroid toxins that cruciferous vegetables generate are the isothiocyanates. Under normal metabolism within the human body, isothiocyanates release large amounts of thiocyanate ion, which inhibits the uptake of iodide into the thyroid gland. Thiocyanate ion is so named because it, because it consists of sulfur, thio, and cyanide, cyanate. Under conditions of low iodine intake, thiocyanate itself accumulates in the thyroid gland and tricks thyroid peroxidase, or TPO, into oxidizing its sulfur atom into sulfate rather than oxidizing what little iodide there is into iodine. Isothiocyanates also react with proteins and amino acids to generate small amounts of thiourea derivatives, which also interfere with TPO. They thus prevent the conversion of iodide to iodine, the incorporation of iodine into the tyrosine residues of thyroglobulin, and the pairing of these residues to form thyroid hormone. A high dietary intake of iodine can overcome the effect of thiocyanate ion, but cannot overcome the effect of thiourea derivatives. Since isothiocyanates generate much higher amounts of thiocyanate than they do thiourias, even moderate amounts of Cruciferous vegetables generate enough thiocyanate to antagonize the effect of iodine, while much larger intakes of crucifers are required to generate enough thiourias to produce antithyroid effects that iodine cannot reverse. In other words, dietary iodine can overcome the effects of moderate amounts of crucifers, but cannot overcome the effect of large amounts of crucifers. Researchers from the University of Calcutta recently showed that a diet composed of 30% radish recently in 2007. A diet composed of 30% radish by weight produced hypothyroidism, derangement of the cells of the thyroid gland, and increased thyroid weight typical of goiter. Neither boiling the radish for 15 minutes nor supplementing the rats with 12 to 14 micrograms of iodine per day, equivalent to a 75-kilogram person consuming 13 milligrams of iodine per day, was able to reverse the effect of the radish. Thiocyanate also inhibits the transfer of iodine into milk by the mammary gland. 
Thiocyanate crosses the placenta into the fetal bloodstream during pregnancy and passes into the maternal milk during lactation. Milk from cows grazing on especially goitrogen-rich crucifers resulted in an outbreak of goiter in Finland in the 1960s. Because feeding goitrogens to animals can produce thyroid cancer, a number of research groups have investigated the potential association between cruciferous vegetables and this disease. To date, all of them have been case control studies, meaning in two, as of 2007, which select the participants and collect the dietary information after the disease has already been diagnosed, and are therefore subject to several types of bias. A recent analysis pulled together the results of 11 of these studies and concluded that quote-unquote, high intakes of crucifers had no association with thyroid cancer. A closer look at this analysis raises a red flag. In some studies included within it, a, quote-unquote, high intake of crucifers was defined as more than several servings per year. In others, it was defined as more than three, six, or eight servings per month. In yet others, it was defined as more than one or four servings per week. And only in one study was a high intake of crucifers considered to be more than one serving per day. This final study was conducted in Japan and found a 56% increased risk of thyroid cancer associated with an intake of more than 8.5 servings, 8 servings of cruciferous vegetables per week. It ran contrary to the majority of those included, which found decreased risks. Although a single case control study certainly is not grounds for a confident conclusion, it raises the question of whether low intakes of crucifers may offer some protection against thyroid cancer, while consistent daily intake of crucifers may be harmful. Nitriles and indoles, the other cruciferous toxins. In addition to isothiocyanates, glucosinolates also break down into chemicals called nitriles, which can release cyanide into tissues and result in general toxicity at high doses. A nitrile, by definition, is a chemical that contains cyanide. Isothiocyanates differ from nitriles only in that their cyanide is present as thiocyanate, that is, bonded tightly to sulfur. Cyanide exerts its toxicity by binding to the enzyme cytochrome oxidase, which uses oxygen to harvest energy from food molecules in order to produce the universal energy currency of the cell, ATP. In the presence of cyanide, ATP production is compromised and the entire functioning of the cell falls apart. Because one way we detoxify cyanide is to convert it to thiocyanate, nitriles and isothiocyanates are both goitrogenic. The prospect of cyanide toxicity, however, is unique to nitriles. A 2004 study conducted in Japan suggested that massive doses of nitriles that are impossible to obtain from food would be required in order to result in toxicity. This study judged toxicity using behavioral endpoints such as restlessness. A Dutch study conducted in 1991, however, had already shown that toxicity can result with levels of nitriles easily achieved by feeding Brussels sprouts. 10% of the diet as Brussels sprouts by dry weight produced decreased food intake, growth depression, and increased kidney weight and impaired kidney function in rats. This was substantially less than the 15% required to decrease levels of thyroid hormones. A 5% Brussels sprout diet increased liver weight and a diet containing just 2.5% Brussels sprouts increased blood clotting. Although the study could not rule out the effects of other chemicals in the sprouts, liver and kidney toxicity is characteristic of nitrile poisoning. According to laboratory, stimulation, laboratory simulations of digestion, 
Brussels sprouts generate 5 to 10 times the amount of nitriles as broccoli, 10 to 30 times the amount of nitriles as cabbage, and nearly 70 times the amount of nitriles found in sauerkraut. Of those crucifers that have been tested, only the stems and leaves of young broccoli plants approach the nitrile content of Brussels sprouts, generating between one-third and one-half as much upon digestion. In a recent double-blind placebo recent in 2007, double-blind placebo-controlled trial of the short-term safety of broccoli sprouts, four out of nine subjects consuming either 12-gram or 50-gram servings of the sprouts for seven days developed abnormal levels of liver enzymes, indicating possible liver toxicity. Two of the subjects developed the abnormal readings after the researchers released them from the study for two days, and only one of the subjects experienced the repeated abnormal readings required to diagnose clinical liver toxicity. Although the researchers could therefore not attribute any clear and consistent toxicity to the sprouts, the fact that none of the three placebo subjects developed abnormal levels of liver enzymes suggested a causal relationship. Broccoli sprouts are 10 to 100 times as rich as broccoli in glucosinolates, the chemicals that release nitriles upon digestion. Chris Master John in 2022 here, I would step in to say that almost certainly, uh, not almost, certainly there are larger studies of broccoli sprouts available, and I do not know uh, how examining them would alter the conclusions here. So this is uh, one paragraph that's definitely out of date. Back in 2007, I had gone on to say, prudent observers may wish to wait for the completion of long-term safety studies before offering themselves as guinea pigs for this newfangled food. Note to self, look at the more recent trials. Back to the report. Like nitriles, indoles also inhibit ATP production. Indoles accomplish this by generating 3,3-diindolylmethane, D-I-M, within the acidic environment of the stomach. This chemical inhibits the enzyme ATP synthase, which uses the energy harvested by cytochrome oxidase to synthesize ATP. There is no scientific evidence, however, suggesting that one can consume toxic amounts of indoles from food. Glucosinolates and Processing the plant enzyme morosinase, a type of beta-glucosidase, and various bacterial beta-glucosidase enzymes can all break down glucosinolates into isothiocyanates, indoles, and nitriles. Plant morosinase comes into contact with the glucosinolates when we chew the food, while bacterial beta-glucosidase comes into contact with them during fermentation or once the food reaches our intestinal flora. In a neutral or mildly acidic environment, the glucosinolates will break down into either isothiocyanates or indoles. Most glucosinolates in the food we eat yield the former, while a minority yields the latter. Under more acidic conditions, however, a greater proportion of glucosinolates break down into nitriles. In addition to morosinase, the plant, and the plant also contains a protein called epithiospecifier protein, or ESP, that encourages the formation of nitriles rather than isothiocyanates. Mild heat that brings the internal temperature of the vegetable to 50 degrees Celsius destroys ESP. Thus, light cooking substantially reduces the yield of nitriles and increases the yield of isothiocyanates. Bringing the internal temperature of the vegetable to between 90 and 100 Celsius completely destroys the enzyme morosinase. Therefore, glucosinolates cannot be broken down through chewing once the vegetable is fully cooked. However, Intestinal bacteria such as lactobacilli, bifidobacteria, and bacterioides can break down glucosinolates into isothiocyanates, indoles, and nitriles, as well as other chemicals called amines once they pass into the small intestine and colon. 
A cruciferous vegetable that is fully cooked in a microwave yields, on average, one half the amount of isothiocyanates that the raw vegetable would yield. One that is fully cooked by steaming yields, on average, one third the amount of isothiocyanates as the raw vegetable would yield. Since intestinal bacteria are widely variable, however, there is a fourfold variation between individuals. No studies have yet quantified what proportion of the glucosinolates from microwaved or steamed vegetables yield other byproducts in humans such as indoles and nitriles. In contrast to steaming, boiling actually eliminates the glucosinolates themselves. Boiling not only leaches glucosinolates into the cooking water, but can also raise the internal temperature of the vegetable up to 110 degrees Celsius, at which point the thermal degradation of glucosinolates begins. Boiling cabbage for just five minutes results in 35% loss of glucosinolates. Thereafter, each additional five minutes results in another 5-10% to loss. By 30 minutes of boiling, 87% of the glucosinolates are eliminated. At 5 minutes, fully 77% of the glucosinolate loss is accounted for by their leaching into the cooking water. At 30 minutes, however, only 25% of the loss can be accounted for in this way. Thus, if one is discarding the water, a half hour of boiling eliminates nearly 90% of the glucosinolates, while if one is retaining the water as in a soup, a half hour of boiling eliminates about 65% of the glucosinolates. Extend boiling is therefore the only way to avoid exposure to isothiocyanates, indoles, and nitriles. Fermentation of sauerkraut for three to five days fully converts the glucosinolates into isothiocyanates and nitriles. Very little indole is found in sauerkraut. Fermentation for two weeks or longer fully converts the isothiocyanates into thiocyanate ions. Regardless of the length of time, fermentation reduces the amount of nitriles formed to half of what would be expected. Since sauerkraut is used as a condiment, it provides important nutrients, enzymes, and bacteria, and only a small amount of goitrogens. It is important to note, however, that while the use of sauerkraut as a condiment may be health-promoting, eating an excess of it could be harmful. Cyanogenic Glycosides the natural pesticides of many plants. Over 2,500 plant species produce substances toxic to the thyroid called cyanogenic glycosides. The most important food source of these compounds are cassava, from which tapioca is derived, also known as manioc and yucca, lima beans, sorghum sprouts, flax, the seeds of apples and pears, and the leaves, fruit, and seeds of black cherries, cherries, almonds, plums, peaches, and apricots. The characteristic bitter taste of these foods results from the cyanogenic glycosides. The relative bitterness of the part of the plant or the particular variety of the species can therefore be used as a judge of its cyanogen content. Cyanogenic glycosides are very similar to glucosinolates. They contain both glucose and cyanide. Unlike glucosinolates, however, they do not contain sulfur. Consequently, beta-glucosidases can only cleave them into nitriles and cannot cleave them into isothiocyanates. Plants containing cyanogenic glycosides also contain a beta-glucosidase enzyme. They keep the glycoside and the enzyme in separate compartments so that the toxic nitriles are only released when pests attack the plant. Plants also contain a second enzyme, alpha-hydroxynitrile lyase, which hastens the release of hydrogen cyanide from the nitrile. The enzyme, however, is not necessary for this reaction to occur. While it may increase the rate of the reaction, the reaction also occurs spontaneously. Once freed from the nitrile, hydrogen cyanide releases the toxic cyanide ion into a water-based solution such as our blood or the fluid that permeates our cells. 
Plants use cyanogenic glycosides as natural pesticides. Cassava, for example, uses them to protect itself from the cassava root borer. To most insects, they act as feeding deterrents. Only when scientists deprive these insects of other food do the insects willingly feed on cyanogen-rich plants. A number of insects, however, specialize in eating these plants and have adapted to doing so in numerous ways. Centipedes, millipedes, and some insects such as beetles, true bugs, butterflies, and moths even use cyanogenic glycosides for their own defense. Certain species among the true bugs, butterflies, and moths accumulate cyanogenic glycosides that they obtain from the plants on which they feed and then use them to deter their predators. A number of species among the centipedes, millipedes, and beetles synthesize their own versions of these toxins. The yellow-spotted millipede, also known as the almond-scented millipede, has specialized glands that produce cyanogenic glycosides, beta-glucosidase, and alpha-hydroxynitrile lyase. Just like a cyanogenic plant, it segregates these components into their own compartments so that they will not release toxic cyanide until the moment a predator attacks the millipede. The five-spot burnet moth, by contrast, circulates its glycosides and enzymes together within its primitive form of blood called hemolymph. Its beta-glucosidase, however, is a special type that is completely inactive in the mild acidity of the hemolymph. The strong acidity of a predator's stomach activates the enzyme, immediately causing the release of the toxic cyanide. The individual moth may have sacrificed itself in this scenario, but the larger population of moths thereby protects itself, making clear to any potential predator the pitfalls that await the one who would dare attack its kind. Cyanogenic glycosides, thyroid toxins. We can detoxify cyanide by spontaneously conjugating it to cobalamin, that is, vitamin B12, or to sulfur-containing amino acids, but we primarily detoxify it with the enzyme rhodanese. Rhodanese exists most abundantly in the liver and converts cyanide to thiocyanate by attaching an atom of sulfur to it. Other enzymes provide the sulfur needed for this reaction by degrading the amino acid cysteine thereby depleting the limiting factor for the synthesis of the all-important master antioxidant glutathione. Thiocyanate then decreases the uptake of iodine into the thyroid and mammary glands, and in the absence of sufficient iodine to counter its effects, causes goiter and other iodine deficiency-related pathologies. While a great many plants produce cyanogenic glycosides, most of them are dietary supplements rather than staples. Consequently, most people do not consume large enough quantities of them to encounter major adverse consequences such as large goiters. Cassava is the primary exception. Cassava is a starchy tuber that yields more calories per unit land than corn, sorghum, and rice. Only sugarcane is rich enough in carbohydrates to exceed cassava. Because of this and its remarkable tolerance for stressful growing conditions, it is the sixth cultivated source of energy worldwide. To 500 million people in the tropical and subtropical regions of Africa and Latin America, it is the fourth most important source of carbohydrate. This tuber provides up to 80% of the calories of the diets of some groups indigenous to the Amazon region of South America. Researchers have linked cassava consumption to goiter primarily in several regions of Africa, such as eastern Nigeria, Ijwi Island of the Congo, Zaire, and Tanzania. 
The best studied example was in Idri Island, where goiter prevalence among northern groups was as high as 60%. The staple foods on this island were bananas, beans, sweet potatoes, and cassava. A 1971 study showed that a single meal of cassava grown and prepared on the island, but not meals made from any other staple foods, depressed iodine uptake into the thyroid gland in humans for over 24 hours. Iodine supplementation alone was able to bring about a rapid reduction in the prevalence of goiter. Subsequent studies suggested that the balance between dietary iodine and dietary thiocyanate was the prevailing factor in the development of thyroid disorders. One group estimated that if the iodine to thiocyanate ratio was above 7, the population would be free of thyroid disorders. If the ratio reached as low as 3, goiter would be endemic. If the ratio sank below 2, goiter prevalence would become extreme, and cretinism, a child disorder of retarded mental and physical growth, would also become endemic. Not all groups that consume cassava develop goiter. African groups that peel cassava roots, dry them in the sun, and then cook them without soaking them extensively have high rates of goiter, while other African groups that soak them for two to six days in running water have low rates of goiter. Thyroid disorders are absent among groups indigenous to the Amazon where cassava consumption is highest. These groups soak the roots in running water of the river for three days, peel them, and either press the water out of them with a cloth or let them drain in sleeves of basketry. Then, they dry, ferment, or bake the dough before eating it. This process can bring the potential cyanide content of bitter cassava down from 320 to 1,120 micrograms of cyanide per gram to 0 to 50 micrograms of cyanide per gram. This is even lower than the content of sweet varieties of cassava, which contain 27 to 70 micrograms per gram. While cassava constitutes up to 80% of their diet, the Amazonian natives also consume large amounts of wild fish and game. These foods supply cysteine to replenish that which is used up in detoxifying the cyanide to thiocyanate. Vitamin B12 to detoxify the cyanide by an alternative reaction that does not generate thiocyanate. And iodine to counteract the goitrogenic effect of the thiocyanate. The 20 milligrams per day of cyanide they consume from detoxified cassava generates a substantial rise in blood levels of thiocyanate. But the protective effect of the wild fish and game in their diet appears to allow them to consume this amount of cyanide with impunity. Cyanide Toxicity from Cyanogenic Glycosides Like the nitriles released from glucosinolates and crucifers, those released from cyanogenic glycosides can produce cyanide toxicity. Our body only produces goitrogenic thiocyanate once it successfully detoxifies cyanide by adding a sulfur atom to it. Cyanide that has not been, been detoxified in this way is much more dangerous. One case report describes fatal cyanide poisoning in three aged cows that fed on bird cherries. The cows developed anorexia, weakness, stupor, a rapid and arrhythmic heartbeat, and died within 10 hours of the onset of clinical examination. High blood cyanide concentration and characteristic damage to liver cells confirmed cyanide poisoning. Similar results were shown experimentally with another cyanogenic relative, Prunus cellui. Reports of fatal toxicity have followed swamp buffaloes consuming cyanogenic, the cyanogenic plant Mimosa invisa variety inermis, donkeys eating wild cherries, and sheep consuming harding grass or canary grass. But cyanide poisoning was not conclusively confirmed. 
Indeed, hardy grass contains several non-cyanogenic poisons and even tryptamine-derived hallucinogens. Three of 11 horses feeding on sorghum grain for two months lost proper hind leg coordination and developed urinary incontinence, blood in the urine, depression, and reduced appetite. By contrast, pigs and adult chickens appeared to tolerate cassava well. Tolerance for cyanogenic glycosides, then, appears to be species-specific. Cyanide toxicity in humans is dependent on both body weight and individual tolerance. Individual tolerance itself may be a function of age, health status, and genes. The amount of dietary animal protein providing sulfur-containing amino acids is most likely a critical determining factor as well. The acute lethal dose as a function of body weight varies sevenfold between individuals, ranging from 0.5 to 3.5 milligrams of cyanide per kilogram of body weight. The consumption of 60 bitter almonds, which contain an average of 6.2 milligrams of potential cyanide per almond, has led to one reported fatality. Chronic exposure to cyanogenic glycosides from improperly detoxified bitter cassava may be linked to degenerative diseases such as diabetes and Konzo, a tropical neurological disorder causing paralysis of the lower limbs. Konzo primarily, primarily strikes children over three and women of childbearing age in parts of Africa where cassava is a staple. It occurs in epidemics that follow the dry season when bitter cassava is usually the only available food for weeks or months. In very rare cases, improperly detoxified bitter cassava has led to cyanide-induced coma, renal failure, and death by cardiopulmonary arrest. Although the consumption of certain very bitter varieties of these foods poses the occasional danger of acute toxicity, the good health of the Amazonian groups eating considerable amounts of bitter cassava attests to the ability of traditional forms of detoxification to eliminate these risks. The Effect of Processing on Cyanogenic Glycosides One can minimize cyanogenic glycosides in the diet either by choosing staple foods that are not cyanogenic or by processing cyanogenic foods in a way that eliminates their toxins. Peach and apricot kernels, as well as bitter varieties of lima beans, are by far the richest sources of these chemicals. Bitter varieties of cassava contain half as much. Apple seeds contain a quarter as much. Flax seeds contain a tenth as much. Many sweeter varieties of lima beans and cassava, however, are more than 30-fold lower in these toxins than the bitterest varieties. Processed foods that contain almonds or marzipan paste, which is made from bitter almonds, contain substantial amounts of them. The economically important forage crops, white clover and bird's food trefoil, are also rich in them. Various processing methods such as sprouting, roasting, boiling, and leaching can dramatically alter the content of glycosides in these foods. We have much less information about the effect of processing on these chemicals, however, than we have about the effect of processing on glucosinolates in cruciferous vegetables. Some investigators have measured the cyanogenic potential of a food by letting it sit in water or steam and then observing how much cyanide the food spontaneously releases. Unfortunately, this method cannot distinguish between changes in the content of cyanogens themselves and changes in the content or activity of the enzymes that release cyanide from them. This method is called autohydrolysis or autolysis. Sprouting flax seeds for eight days destroys 40% of the main cyanogenic glycoside, linustatin, and 90% of a secondary cyanogen, neolinustatin. Sorghum grain, by contrast, yields very little cyanide before it is sprouted. 
about equal to that which sweet cassava yields. Sprouting sorghum for three days, however, raises the cyanide yield upon autolysis by 10 to 30 times, making it equivalent to that of bitter cassava. We cannot assume that sprouting will have a positive or negative effect in a given food then, until we obtain information about that particular food itself. Flax seeds roasted intact at 177 degrees Celsius, which is equivalent to 351 degrees Fahrenheit, yield 80% less cyanide upon autolysis than raw seeds. Flax seeds roasted at the same temperature after grinding only yield 20% less cyanide upon autolysis. Boiling for five minutes nearly eliminates the cyanide yield upon autolysis. Wet heat probably destroys the glucosidase enzyme more effectively than dry heat, and ground flax seeds lose their moisture content much more quickly than intact seeds. Since intestinal bacteria produce beta-glucosidase, these data may not be a reliable guide to how these processes affect the yield of cyanide upon digestion within a living organism. Traditional preparation of cassava leaves involves blanching them for 10 minutes, boiling them, and then quickly transferring them to cold water, mashing them, and then further boiling them, sticking them in a stew? <laughs> no, and then further boiling them for 20 to 80 minutes. Groups that detoxify the leaves in this way and extensively leach the roots as described earlier, which eliminates most of the potential cyanide, have a low incidence of goiter. Most people use foods containing cyanogenic glycosides as mere supplements to the diet. It stands to reason that foods such as flax seeds, almonds, cherries, and other fruits in the rosacea family are safe for most people to eat in small quantities without extensively processing them. Since the ability to detoxify cyanide varies sevenfold, however, and since we detoxify it by various different mechanisms, only one of which produces goitrogenic thiocyanate, individuals who have thyroid problems or any chronic illnesses that might result from cyanide exposure should experiment with limiting these foods even as supplements. Toxins or nutrients Flavonoids often act as antioxidants, and the byproducts of glucosinolates and cyanogenic glycosides are often toxic to cancer cells. Yet these chemicals are also toxic to the thyroid gland. Should we therefore view them as nutrients or toxins? Vitamins act as essential regulators of gene transcription or cofactors for essential enzymes. Likewise, essential minerals either compose the structure of, an important, of important tissues such as the calcium and phosphorus in bone or act as cofactors for enzymes like many of the vitamins, or they act as signals. Flavonoids, glucosinolates, and cyanogenic glycosides, by contrast, inhibit enzymes necessary to the function of the cell. To the extent these chemicals do indeed provide benefits to health, it is, mostly, it is most likely by the principle of hormesis. That is, the principle that low doses of toxins serve to keep the body's detoxifying machinery revved up, ready to handle any assault that a greater toxin may wage against it. Consuming foods rich in these compounds, then, may have health benefits, but the compounds themselves are not nutrients. Because of the great complexity of the different flavonoids, each of which has its own physiological action, we cannot brand all flavonoid-rich foods as either beneficial or harmful, although glucosinolates and cyanogenic glycosides all have in common their main toxic components— thiocyanate, and cyanide, they also contain organic molecules that separate themselves from these toxins and may carry out unique physiological effects. We therefore must take individual foods on an individual basis. In some cases, we have experimental evidence that berries, for example, prevent cancer or neurological degeneration. 
In the absence of experimental evidence, our best guide is not the traditional diet of every indigenous group, but the traditional diets of those groups who remain free of degenerative illness, including goiter. Likewise, the individual must take her or his own experience into account. If one suffers from symptoms of hypothyroidism or chronic cyanide exposure, one may want to practice stricter moderation of the goitrogenic foods described herein. If, however, one maintains resilient health eating a diet rich in these foods, such restriction may not be necessary. Indeed, what is a bane to one person's health may be a boon to another's. The data herein, then, should be taken neither as a condemnation of any food nor as a reason to fear any food, but rather as one of the many tools that can be used as a means to another end, designing the diet that can best afford you the vibrant health that you deserve. The references are available in the written version of this on my Substack at chrismasterjohnphd.substack.com. This concludes the main text of the report. But now there are several sidebars that are alluded to in line in the main text, but within this audio are included at the end. The text version of this also has several figures and tables, and those are not read here. The first sidebar, the many faces of a flavonoid. Flavonoids generally have three, four, or five hydroxyl groups to which sugars may be attached. Where the sugar is attached and what type of sugar it is determines where and how the flavonoid will be processed in our intestines, as well as how much of and in what form it will be absorbed. Take, for example, two of the many forms of quercetin, which itself has five different hydroxyl groups to which sugars may be attached. Rutin, also called quercetin-3-rutinicide, has a disaccharide composed of glucose and rhamnose attached to a specific hydroxyl group on its middle ring. By contrast, quercetin-4-glucoside has a single molecule of glucose attached to a specific hydroxyl on its rightward most ring. This latter form can be processed and absorbed in the small intestine. Two different enzymes can achieve this, either the one that our intestinal border secretes into the open space where food is digested called lactase fluorizin hydrolase, so named for its ability to free sugars from the flavonoid fluorizin found in the bark of fruit trees and its common attachment to the enzyme lactase, or the one made within the cells lining our intestinal tract called cytosolic beta-glucosidase. Six human volunteers consuming 270 grams of onions fried for several minutes in margarine absorbed 4.7% of the quercetin, present primarily as quercetin-4-glucoside, and the closely related quercetin-3,4-diglucoside. One study found that between six healthy individuals, there was a 140-fold variation in the absorption of quercetin after the consumption of rutin, ranging from 0.02% to 2.8%. This one example shows that even when looking at the same flavonoid, quercetin, the mere amount in the food tells us very little about the amount that will make its way through our body where it will carry out a physiological effect. Sidebar 2. Does autoclaving aggravate or ameliorate the goitrogenicity of millet? In the second study examining the goitrogenic effects of millet in rats, published in 1983, the researchers fed rats both raw millet and millet that had been autoclaved at 15 pounds of pressure per square inch for 20 minutes. Autoclaving the millet eliminated the changes in hormone levels, but did nothing to prevent the structural changes within the thyroid gland. This could be interpreted in three different ways. First, it could suggest that one of two different types of goitrogens was responsible for each change, that autoclaving destroyed one type while leaving the other intact. 
Second, it could suggest that there was only one type of goitrogen, and autoclaving destroyed just enough of it to ameliorate the effect on hormone levels, but not enough to ameliorate the effect on thyroid tissue. Third, the autoclaving may have activated the goitrogens and made the millet more toxic, and the normalization of hormone levels was a result of a more severe toxic state. There are two reasons why the third interpretation is the most plausible. In hindsight, we know that the primary goitrogenic agents in millet are flavonoids, and flavonoids are not destroyed by heat. Although the temperature that the autoclave would have reached, 121 degrees Celsius or 250 degrees Fahrenheit, is greater than the boiling temperature that would be reached when cooking the millet into a porridge, flavonoids withstand much higher temperatures, 180 degrees Celsius or 356 degrees Fahrenheit, for much longer periods of time. These high temperatures will not destroy onion flavonoids, for example, even after 60 minutes. They do, however, substantially break down the sugars that are attached to them, possibly making them more bioavailable, and in the case of millet, more goitrogenic. Most importantly, the goiter that prevails in populations consuming large amounts of millet is not accompanied by abnormal T3 levels. Although T4 levels go down when the goiter begins, they normalize as it becomes more severe. There is better reason then to think that normalization of hormone levels actually reflects a hastening of the goitrogenic process, making it even more similar to that which occurs in humans who eat millet. Since millet-induced goiter in humans initially depresses T4 rather than increasing it as occurs in rats, however, we cannot draw any firm conclusion. Sinolates, the precursors to goitrogens and the plant's natural pesticides, varies with the plant's age, its environment, and the agricultural practices with which it is grown. As a plant matures, its level of glucosinolates declines dramatically. The content of thiocyanate, a breakdown product of glucosinolates, is five times higher in the small young leaves of kale than in the fully formed mature leaves. The glucosinolate content of broccoli sprouts is 10 to 100 times that of mature broccoli. One study showed organic crops have 15 to 40% higher average levels of glucosinolates than conventional crops. Infections of seeds or plants by fungi, parasitic insects, or other pests can double the content of glucosinolates. Thank you and stay healthy out there.